Well, good evening again, everybody. Everything okay? Yeah? Uh, tonight, I would like to talk about uh, bodhicitta, which is a, a term used in Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, it's, it's a term that goes to the very heart of the practice in Mahayana Buddhism. The word bodhicitta comes from two root words put together. Uh, bodhi, which means uh, awakening or to awaken, it's the same root word as the word for, for Buddha, the awakened one. And citta, uh, which means uh, variously a thought or uh, intention or attitude, we could say uh, spirit. So bodhicitta, the spirit of awakening, the attitude of awakening. So in Mahayana Buddhism, this, uh, the dawning of bodhicitta within one's heart is viewed as a joyful and crucial uh, experience. Like having a, a sudden vision or inspiration that would so saturate your life that you'd just feel like you wanted to live differently and see the world in a completely different way. That you'd want to uh, live a life that would be, uh, at every point, inspired by and manifesting this, this bodhicitta. And in Mahayana Buddhism, the, the uh, uh, one of the most important aspects of bodhicitta, although you might not see this at first, after a while it becomes obvious that bodhicitta is essentially uh, altruistic. It's, it's a path of, of love and ultimate concern for others. So that the spirit is to live a life uh, of awakeness all the time, and that that awakeness would always unfold uh, with concern for others, love for others, a desire all the time to be of benefit to others, of service to others, and that, and that this spirit would imbue your life. So that's bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is pretty much the opposite of the usual attitude that we all have in living, because usually the attitude that we have in living is self-concern, uh, and, and concern not for awakening, but in self-concern in a narrow sense. And self-concern, uh, probably everybody here wouldn't be here if you didn't already feel like self-concern was fairly limited. And um, not only limited, but basically self-concern, the path of self-concern is an unhappy path, an unfortunate path. Self-concern makes one's life actually quite small, as small as the self. It reduces the imagination. It reduces the possibilities. It reduces the vision. When self-concern is our guide, when self-concern is our motivation, we have a kind of limited perspective on what this self-concern should be about and what we need in order to benefit ourselves. And uh, there's a lot of things we need, right? A lot of things we want. 
and one notices very rapidly that, that the world is not necessarily providing these things. And it's a frustrating path, the path of self-concern, because here we are, very, very small, very needy, need a lot of stuff, and, and the world is not, you know, kind of making a wide swath for us, give, giving us all these things. In fact, it seems to be a stumbling block, the world. We want love, but where's the love? You know, where's, the, where's the person we love? We can wander around the whole world here and there, and we never find this person, uh, or fulfillment in various ways. So this is the problem with self-concern, is that self-concern requires that the world be extremely cooperative with our needs. <laughs> and, uh, and this is not what we find. We find that the world is you know, strongly resistant to our, our personal needs. When the light of bodhicitta dawns in our life, this whole problem is seen in a totally different perspective. Everything gets illuminated, and the whole world widens. And we see how silly self-concern is. We see how much better it is to be expansive, how much happier it is to be concerned for others, to think of others. Because we begin to recognize that others are ourself. And that when we look deeply at the nature of ourself, we see that ourself is others. So that the picture widens out and we have a whole different set of concerns and joys. And even when bodhicitta sees suffering in the world, in others, and takes it in, and feels its, its grief and its difficulty, there's still joy. Because the anguish that we feel comes exactly from self-concern. It doesn't come from difficulty or bad things happening. It comes from difficulty and bad things happening in the light of self-concern. When difficulty arises and bad things are happening in the light of bodhicitta, even though we may feel sorrow, uh, there's some joy because the picture is so big and so joyfully uh, imbued with love. So that's, that's the feeling of bodhicitta in Mahayana Buddhism. And so there's a tremendous concern, first of all, uh, uh, respect and, and love and, and honoring of this bodhicitta, this attitude, and, and a lot of teachings and a lot of effort to try to bring about this revolution within oneself, to cultivate it, strengthen it, and develop it further. So tonight I want to I actually just read for you a, 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 the first chapter of a very famous text that many of you may know about, uh, which is uh, the most famous text for the cultivation of bodhicitta. It's a kind of a, a lifetime course in bodhicitta arising, strengthening, and developing. And it's called The Way of the Bodhisattva, because the Bodhisattva is the one who practices the way of bodhicitta. And this is an 8th century text by an Indian monastic called Shantideva. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> read for you the first chapter and, and maybe comment on it as I, as I go along. And I'll probably, uh, this is a translation by uh, a contemporary group of Western uh, Buddhists who 
know the Sanskrit and the Tibetan and, and do a good job translating it, but I'll probably, inevitably, as I go along reading it, first of all, I'll warn you in advance, I'll probably skip various verses so that I'm not going to just read the whole thing rote. And also, I may, as I go along, kind of a paraphrase uh, for, for clarity and fun. <laughs> so, uh, just so you know, that this is not going to be exactly what it says in the book, uh, but it, more or less. So, uh, it begins with uh, Shantideva paying homage to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, <clears throat> and then he says, to all those who are full of happiness, uh, meaning the Buddhas, the Buddhas are full of happiness and bliss, to the Dharma that they have mastered, and to all those who have followed after them, all these who merit a veneration, I now prostrate myself with respect. According to tradition, I will now in brief describe the entrance to the Bodhisattva discipline. What I'm going to say has all been said before. And I'm not all that smart or good with words. And I, and I have no idea that what I'm going to say will have any benefit to anyone else. But I'm saying it to help me to understand better. So I love this verse, you know, as someone who gives Dharma talks, because this is how, exactly how I feel. You know, everything that I will say tonight and I've ever said, you know, in Dharma talks has all been said before. And uh, I don't know that much, and uh, my skill with words is small. So I have no real hope that anybody here will benefit, you know, by <laughs> what I'm saying. But, it, but it's a good idea for me to say it, because I know it will help me. It will help me to... Uh, I'm serious, you know, I'm not, this, this is not a joke. Uh, I know, for sure, by my own experience, that if I talk to you about these things, I'll go home and I'll think, yeah, that's really true. <laughs> what I said there, what Shanti Davis said. It's really true. And, uh, and since I said it, I, I can't really afford to not practice it. You know, I'm saying this to people. How what would it be like if I, if I was not taking it seriously? What would, what would I feel like next time I said it the next time? You know, again. So, so it really helps me. So I don't know if you'll get any good out of this talk, but I know that I will. And... And, uh, and Shanti Davis said the same thing. So uh, I, I feel much affirmed by his, by his comment. He says, uh, he goes on, and by giving this talk, by giving this uh, teaching on Bodhicitta, my faith will be strengthened, at least for a little while. And if I keep talking about it, I may grow accustomed to this way of looking at things. And, I, and, I, and you know, maybe I'll more and more see things this way. And maybe other people who chance upon my words, maybe all of you who might, who bumped into these words coming through me, you may also benefit a little bit, and I hope so. So that's what he says in the beginning. He then says, he says, folks, you know, it's not that easy to be in the position that we're in now to be in, in a human life, 
in which we are not beset by crushing labor, so hard that at the end of the day all we could do is fall down and sleep and wake up the next morning and start over again, day after day after day. We have, we have uh, enough energy left over at the end of our work day to come to Spirit Rock, to consider uh, life's purpose, to consider the spiritual side of human life. This is a tremendously fortunate thing. So if we fail now to take this opportunity and turn it into something really good, what a pity. And when will we ever have a chance like this again? Just like when a flash of lightning shoots through the sky at night, and in the glare of the lightning shows all that the clouds had hid. Likewise, through the Buddha's power, virtuous thoughts arise, just that brief and just that transient in the world. And when you think about it, this is really true. When we look at our minds, how many beautiful, virtuous thoughts are there? You know, really. I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot of crappy, boring, repetitive, troubled thinking going on in the mind of the average person. I'm not talking about a person with problems, or psychological problems. I'm just saying the average person, like you and me, we're not thinking beautiful, virtuous thoughts. We're not, are we? We're thinking, you know, mundane, troubled thoughts most of the time, or, or trivial thoughts. And every now and then, it is true, every now and then, how often? Maybe once a year, maybe? <laughs> once a month? Some beautiful thought of loving kindness, of heart-filled, you know, happy thought crosses the mind. And, and Shanti Davis says, this is caused by Buddha, you know. And it, it illuminates the whole, I mean, a, a thought that is so virtuous that you feel happy, you know, for, free, for thinking that. That's rare, Right? And when that happens, uh, it's just like a lightning flash. It illuminates the mind for that long, and then it's gone. And he says, Thus behold the utter frailty of goodness. I mean, it's shocking to realize, but isn't that, tr- isn't that true? How, how frail and unusual it is to really be inspired by goodness. Except for Bodhicitta. There is nothing able to withstand the great and overwhelming strength of negativity. So it really is true. I mean, we're we're all happy that we're not insane. I mean, I'm happy I'm not insane. I'm glad. We're happy that we're not in an anguish circumstance. But really, when you, when you think about it, normal for us is rel- relatively negative for, for most people in the world. And, and, and the negativity from all the bumps and bruises that we've gotten, the sum total of us in the world, is, is very, very strong. And by comparison with this, some transcendent goodness and, and wonderful uh, capacity for, for, well, for, you know, for doing good and inspiring others and inspiring ourselves. This is very weak by comparison. So that's why we have to develop the capacity for it, you see, because just if we wait for another flash of lightning, boom, boom, it's gone. You know, it's not gonna, we're not going to get very far. So we must 
develop bodhicitta, to withstand the force of this garden variety everyday negativity. The mighty Buddhas, pondering for many ages, have seen that this and only this will save the boundless multitudes and bring them easily to supreme joy. Those who wish to overcome the sorrows of their lives and put to flight the pain and suffering of beings, you know, many beings in this world, in trouble, those who wish to win such great beatitude should never turn their backs on bodhicitta. Should bodhicitta come to birth in, in someone who is suffering terrible uh, tragedy, in that very instant she would become an heir of the Buddha and would be worthy of respect from all human beings and even gods. For the bodhicitta is like the substance that the alchemists were always looking for, that magic substance that turns base metals into gold. Because the bodhicitta takes the impure, uh, impermanent, feeble, nasty, stinky human body and turns it into the precious body of a Buddha. So that's bodhicitta, and we should really respect bodhicitta, and if we ever see it, we should run in that direction. If the perfect leaders of all the wandering beings in the world have with boundless wisdom seen its priceless worth, this is the Buddhas, we who wish to live our, to leave behind our, our wandering confusion should hold well to this precious bodhicitta. All other virtues are like the plantain tree. They produce their fruit, and when they, when they do that, they die back. But the marvelous tree of bodhicitta will bear its fruit and grow unceasingly, because love doesn't really wear out. I mean, we talk about compassion fatigue, and we may, our compassion may wear out. But real love the pure love that comes from bodhicitta cannot wear out. It only increases. The more love there is, the more love there is. It doesn't wear out. Its fruit is never exhausted. Just as by the fires at the end of time. And somehow uh, the, early, the early Buddhists, remarkably, really, although they didn't have... Uh, big telescopes, and they didn't have the benefit of uh, all we know about the universe, they somehow intuited that worlds were created and destroyed, and that world systems would be created, and then they would burn out in, in, in a fire and pass away. So they knew that. And their idea was that this, would, this is how ultimate peace would come. A world system would burn up in fire, and, and so it would all the karma and all the, all the confusion would, would pass away into silence and peace. At the, end of a, at the end of a world system. So just the same way that that happens, all evil karma within us, all of our restlessness and confusion, is utterly consumed by bodhicitta, just the same way a world is burned by fire. And so its benefits are boundless. Bodhicitta is said to have two aspects. First, aspiring bodhicitta, or bodhicitta in intention, and then active bodhicitta, practical engagement. It's like the difference between deciding that you're going to go on a trip 
and going to book passage and buying the guidebook and booking your flight. It's very important things to do before you go on a trip. But it's not the same as going. That's the difference between aspiring bodhicitta and bodhicitta in practice. Bodhicitta in intention already bears rich fruit. Even just wanting to develop bodhicitta, even when it isn't there, even when you haven't begun the path, just wanting to develop it already bears rich fruit for those still wandering in samsara. And yet, a ceaseless stream of merit does not come from it. That will come only from the active bodhicitta. And then he says something very important. He says, For when, with irreversible intent, with irreversible intent, the mind embraces bodhicitta, willing to set free the endless multitude of beings at that instant, from that moment on, a great and unremitting stream of strength and wholesome merit, even during sleep and inattention, rises equal to the vastness of the sky. Isn't that something? But it's a tall order, because imagine having irreversible intent this is, this is the real bodhicitta. This is why it's so praised and why it's so strong. Imagine having the irreversible intent to continue to live a life of awakening without stint for everyone, not only for yourself, but for everyone. Imagine having that be the reason why you were living, the only thing you were interested in. The many other things that you did would all be in service of that. If you had that irreversible intent, then there would be a great and unremitting stream of strength and help coming your way. Even when you were asleep, even when you kind of lost track of yourself and weren't making effort. We think of our life as depending on you know, our effort, right? If I make even meditation. If I meditate hard and do many retreats, one after the other, I'm bound to get some good out of it by my effort. But here it's saying it's not that effort. It's this irreversible intention. And the spirit inside will draw to you strength and help. Even when you're not paying attention. Even when you're out to lunch. Even when you are not meditating. Even when you're sleeping. And how much merit? As much as the vastness of the sky. And then, I'm skipping a little bit here. Uh, He says... Isn't it funny? We all want to end misery for ourselves. Who is pursuing misery? Nobody. Who wants to be happy? Everybody. And yet, despite the fact that this is our intention and everybody's intention, we're running as fast as we can in the direction of misery. We all long for joy and happiness. But stupidly, we're going along, smashing whatever joy and happiness might be coming our way. In the, in the distance, we don't see, see what it is, and we're smashing it, and we're running in the opposite direction. So this is a human, ordinary human life, normal 
human life, not, not screwed up, messed up human life, normal human life, is, is basically in Zen, there's, there's a saying, you know, upside down. Our life is exactly upside down. We're going exactly in the opposite direction from what we most truly want. We, we keep trying to grab and hold on to things that we can't grab, grab or hold on to. Like our life, you know. I mean, what do we hate? We hate to die. Well, how are we going to do with that? Not well. We're, gonna, we're not going to be able to prevent that. And this is maybe the number one problem. But you, you can name many, many things after that. This is, what, this is our desire and our, and our intention and the way we're going. And we need to go in exactly the opposite direction. But those who fill with bliss all beings destitute of joy, who cut all pain and suffering away from those weighed down with misery, who drive away the darkness of of their ignorance. In other words, for those who stop chasing after what they can never get and instead turn around and just offer benefit and loving kindness to others with an intention to really and truly be all about helping others. What virtue could possibly match with theirs and what friend could be compared with them? If people who do just a little bit of good because you did me a favor so I turn around and I give you something in return and I, and I thank you a lot, I get a lot of praise for that. If people like that get praise what can we even say about bodhisattvas who instead of giving a little bit when they get something are giving everything to everybody for no reason? If people who have a lot of money scornfully and with condescension go to this uh, soup kitchen and buy a meal for the poor homeless people and get a lot of credit for that and maybe they get a big plaque somewhere, they're big <laughs> philanthropists, they did a lot, and they deserve it. You know, It's really good that they did that. Shanti David doesn't mean this is not good. He's saying, if we give those people credit, how much more credit should we give to bodhisattvas who offer the supreme joy of Buddhahood, not only lunch, but Buddhahood, (laughs) to all sentient beings? Good and virtuous thoughts will yield abundant fruit in great measure. Even in adversity, even when things are tough, even when things are happening that they did not want, bodhisattvas never bring forth negativity. Their actions always produce an increasing stream of goodness. So to them in whom this precious sacred mind is born. To them, I again, like I did at the beginning, I again now at the end of this chapter bow, and I go to them for refuge, for that precious bodhicitta that is the source of happiness, that even brings its very enemies to perfect bliss. So that's Shanti Deva's first chapter on Bodhicitta. And I wonder if we might pause here for a moment and uh, return just for a few minutes to our meditation.
to the feeling of the body and of the breath because that is really, when you come down to it in the simplest way, that is our meditation practice. Just to be with the feeling of the body, to be with the feeling of the breath coming and going, very gently to bring the mind into the present moment of being alive, very simply. And in that spaciousness, in that quietness, Just look and see, without any intention or any special effort, just look and see, how do I feel about this, I'm I'm hearing this bodhicitta, what does it bring to my heart? Am Am I dubious about it? Do I think, this is crazy stuff, a little, I came for a little meditation and now I'm hearing all this stuff about saving all beings and is he talking about? Or is there something in, in us that says, yes, I know about that. Wouldn't it be wonderful? I'm not sure it's possible, but wouldn't it be nice? Or maybe this aspiration is already in you somewhere. Can you find it? Can you feel it? Or maybe you once met someone who seemed to express this attitude. How did you feel? going to ask for a show of hands, but I suppose that it's not a high percentage of you who came to Spirit Rock tonight with the aspiration to develop bodhicitta as soon as possible. (laughs) And uh, this is absolutely normal, because there are very few people who would come to do practice with that aspiration. And if, and if they did come with that aspiration, you should be suspicious because it's likely that it's a fantasy. Most of us come to Spirit Rock or, or wherever we go because we have our own needs, our own interests, our own reasons 
for practicing meditation. And this is, as I say, completely normal. And this is always the way practice begins. It doesn't begin on this lofty plane. It begins with suffering. Either strong suffering that we know about or some dis-ease that we sense in the middle of our living. Maybe sometimes just with a curiosity that turns out to have been disease and we didn't know it. Or sometimes it's just a coincidence or a mistake. Oop, I thought I was going to a barbecue. <laughs> I, didn't really, I took a wrong turn and I came down the road and there were, I followed the crowd and I came in here and I didn't see the hot dogs. I, everybody was sitting down, I sat down and I heard all this. Sometimes that happens. There have been some famous cases of that. <laughs> but no matter what brings you to practice, along the way, if you continue, it may happen that a bolt of lightning suddenly lightens up the sky. It may happen that just for a moment, bodhicitta will dawn in us and we will realize, I thought I was coming for myself. That was my idea, but it, that really wasn't it. I was coming to fulfill my destiny as a human being, to be a loving, generous, open-hearted creature. That's what we're all supposed to be. And I came for myself, but now I'm practicing for others. My meditation practice really isn't for me. It's for my family. It's for my children, my parents. It's for the people I work with, my friends. It's for untold numbers of people very far away whom I'm, whom I'm concerned about, even though I don't know their names. So, let's think a little bit more here about bodhicitta. Because inevitably, when we first hear about it, naturally, we're going to understand it according to our usual perspective, our usual way of thinking. When we hear someone say, practice for the benefit of others, we might hear, Forget about yourself. Or we might hear, deny yourself and just go out and help others. But this is not really bodhicitta. This is not really the spirit of awakening. Because what does awakening mean? What are we, did you ever think about that? You know, the, the word is often used enlightenment, but actually that's not the word mostly used in the tradition. The word that's typically used in the tradition is not enlightenment, it's awakening. Awakening from what? What are we awakening from? We're all sleeping, so we have to wake up. What are we awakened from? We awaken from the dream of self-concern, the dream of I'm over here, you're over there. There's only so much happiness to go around. I better get mine because otherwise you'll get it and take it away from me. We're all living in that dream. Bodhicitta and awakening is to awaken from that dream world of me and you and him and her 
and to understand those pronouns for what they really are. Useful designations, mere designations. Because me and you and him and her and we and us and them all spring from the same source. They're all expressions of the same person. So it would not be possible to actually love others without loving ourselves. That's what loving the self actually means, loving others. Because self and others are are equal and exchangeable. So so bodhisattva love, we would, I think, interpret it when we hear about it as a kind of self-sacrifice. But it isn't that. Bodhisattva love recognizes that loving others will always be perverted if one doesn't love oneself. So the self-concern that I was talking about before isn't really self-love. It's actually a form of self-hatred. Self-concern reduces the self to something small and separate, lonely and vulnerable. And then it makes such a big deal out of this little something and gives it so many needs and requirements exactly because it's so small and vulnerable that it's absolutely guaranteed to be unsuccessful. So that's why self-concern is actually a form of radical self-hatred. Self-concern is guaranteed, it's a guaranteed failure, it's guaranteed misery. To really love oneself is to love everyone. And to really love everyone is to love oneself. To fantasize some notion of loving everyone when you're actually fixated on yourself, this is just a refined, self-deceptive form of self-concern. Making so much of the self. Now the true self, yourself, Myself, ourselves, is precious and immense. The true self is a tremendous possibility. It's a tremendous responsibility. And at the same time, it is not such a very big deal. Because the self, by its nature, disappears at every point into others. That's how it actually is. So I thought I would read you some words by uh, Shunryu Suzuki, who is the uh, great Zen master who founded our Zen centers. And this is from uh, a new book, not so new by now, but a few years old, uh, beautifully edited by Ed Brown called Not Always So. And if those of you who are unfamiliar with Suzuki Roshi's words, I feel very happy that I get to uh, be the first one to introduce you to his beautiful, plain speaking. He's talking here about a famous story in the Zen tradition, uh, the famous first 
ancestors and Bodhidharma and his immediate disciple whose name was Ekka. So he starts with this story. Bodhidharma tells Ekka, if you want to enter our practice, cut yourself off from outward objects and stop your emotional thinking and activity within. When you become like a brick or a stone wall, you will enter the way. Sounds very severe, no? Very Zen. That's why nobody comes to the Zen centers. It's terrifying. <laughs> Come here, they say, watch your mind, you know, loving kindness. But the Zen center, be like a brick, a stone. Nobody wants to come. Anyway, that's what he says. So then Suzuki Roshi, now commenting on the story, says, uh, well, for Eka, this was very difficult practice. I mean, we can imagine. <laughs> but he tried hard until he finally thought he understood what Bodhidharma meant. Then Eka told Bodhidharma that there was no break, there was no gap in his practice. There was never any cessation of practice. And we think, we go to Spirit Rock for practice, and then we leave Spirit Rock and the practice is over, and we'll come back next Monday. But Eka said, no, there's no break, there's no gap, there's only constant practice. And Bodhidharma said, then who are you? Who does constant practice? And then Eka said, and this is the way Suzuki Roshi interprets it, it's very beautifully, Eka said, because I know myself very well, it is difficult to say who I am. Do you understand? Because I know myself very well, it is difficult to say who I am. And Bodhidharma said, that's right, you are my disciple. Suzuki Roshi goes on commenting, we do not practice Zazen to attain awakening. Zazen is meditation. But rather to express our true nature. So think about that. We don't meditate to get something. We meditate to express what we are. Even your thinking is an expression of your true nature when you are practicing meditation. So you might think, you're practicing meditation, your mind is going on and on, chattering, and you might be thinking, damn, I'm not doing this meditation right. I've got to try to cut that out. Don't some of you think that way? Isn't this a commonplace thing? You think, oh, no, this is terrible. My meditation is very bad today. And yesterday. And tomorrow, the day before. But he says, even your thinking is an expression of your true nature when you are practicing meditation. And then he says, I love this part. He says, you're thinking. So when you're in meditation, your mind is going on and on. See, self-concern tells you, damn, I'm, I'm doing it wrong, I'm thinking, I, my mind is very distracted. Isn't that the way we think? But he says, when you're thinking in meditation, your thinking is like someone in talking in the backyard or across the street. Why would you take it that personally? See? It's like someone talking in the backyard or across the street. You may wonder what they're talking about. <laughs> But, but that someone is not anybody in particular. 
That's profound, isn't it? And that, that really should help with your meditation practice from now on. Who is that someone talking? It's your true nature. It's not you. It's not your self-cherishing you. It's your true nature. And you don't know who it is, so you're not getting the code. You're mixing up what's being, what you're hearing. When Eka, the second ancestor, came to this point, he told Bodhidharma that he thought he understood. He said, a stone wall itself is Buddha nature, a brick is also Buddha nature. Everything, everything, everything is an expression of Buddha nature. So we have things we think are an expression of Buddha nature, other things we would like to do without. Right? This is a recipe for further self-cherishing, because everything is an expression of Buddha nature. And then Suzuki Roshi says, he says some really hilarious things in this book, I think. And he doesn't mean them to be funny, but to me they're really hilarious. He says, I used to think that after I attained enlightenment, I would know who is in the backyard talking. (laughs) But there is no special person hidden within who is explaining a special teaching. All the things we see, all that we hear, is an expression of Buddha nature. When we're practicing meditation, we are all practicing with the ancients. So don't think it's you sitting there on the cushion by yourself. It's just not so. You are practicing with the ancients. And you should clearly know this point. So you can't waste your time, because they're all there with you, see? And what he means is not, you shouldn't waste your time. He means, it's impossible for you to waste your time, because they're there with you. There's no way you could waste your time. Even if your zazen is not very good, there's no way you can waste your time. You may not even understand what it is, but someday, sometime, someone will accept your practice. So just practice without wandering, without being involved in sightseeing meditation. (laughs) Looking for this and that out of it. We go sightseeing, you know, we want to take a picture, photograph, bring it home and put it in our pile of photographs. How many photographs does everybody have now? It's unbelievable, you know. Somebody told me that you can get all the slides that you have in your closet that you took before there was digital photography. And you can put the whole thing in a box and send it to this outfit. And they'll put it all online. And then you can make a selection and throw the slides away if you want, the rest of them. Because this is sightseeing, living. Go there, take a picture, bring it home. Well, let's not practice meditation that way. He says, good or bad, wonderful experiences, terrible experiences, no experiences at all, makes no difference. If you sit with this understanding, having conviction in your Buddha nature, then sooner or later you will find yourself among the great spiritual masters. So the important point is to practice without any idea of a hasty gain, without any idea of profit. 
we do not practice meditation for the sake of others or for the sake of ourselves. Just practice meditation for its own sake. Just sit. That was something he said all the time. So, even though we appreciate Shanti Deva's great teaching about bodhicitta, we don't usually call it bodhicitta. And we don't usually begin shouting and jumping up and down and about compassion and love and so forth. And this is not because we're so shy and we're so modest. It's because we know that as soon as we set up something desirable, something we're all supposed to get and do right, like bodhicitta or love or Buddhism or meditation, as soon as we set up something like that, we'll get entangled in it and we will lose our way. And that's why as one continues in practice over the years, practice gets more and more and more simple. It's very simple. There really isn't any such thing as bodhicitta. There really isn't isn't any such thing as the self or the not-self or the other. Actually, there really isn't even any such thing as practice. There's just a way of life that we are living every day. As Eka says, constantly, without ceasing, without gaps. A way of life that we are committed to, not because we've made a big point of it, but because it is so obvious there wouldn't be any other possibility. A way of life that we really can't define. A way of life that we would never stridently insist on because that would only be more aggression and more trouble. And yet, a way of life that we, that we know. We know what it is. And we know what it's not. So we have, so that's what I wanted to tell you. Thank you for listening. We have maybe 10 minutes in case there's any comments or questions or something anybody would like to bring up. Anything? Okay, a few more announcements, and then we're finished. (laughs) Okay, next week, Monday, May 21st, Jack Cornfield will be here. That's good. He's He's back in town. And, as if that weren't enough... (laughs) dinner will be served also 
So it's going to be a red-letter day next Monday night. <laughs> it would be a great help if people could assist our volunteers in tonight's cleanup. First, if everyone could help with moving their chairs to the side of the hall. What? Yeah, it, it just says, if everyone, as if there's another part to the sentence, but there isn't. If you are able to stay longer to help and are not blocking another car, a crucial point, we would certainly appreciate your help. Please check with a volunteer or staff person wearing a white badge and ask how you can help. When you leave, if you are heading east to Fairfax, remember, and you all know what I'm going to say now, don't you? This is always the most stirring part of the evening for me. I love these, this phrase, remember to turn right. <laughs> On to Sir Francis Drake, and then left. So first you go right, then you go left. This is a lesson for life. <laughs> through, through Woodacre. And then it says here in boldface, see, first they say it in a positive way, and now in boldface we get the same message in a negative way. Do not. It says please. Please do not. I love this part. Please do not make a U-turn on Railroad Avenue. Please remember to look around the hall and in the foyer for items you brought with you. So it's always great fun for me to meet with you here at Spirit Rock and take care of yourself. And don't, when you leave, you know, turn right. Do not turn left. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.